Well, once again, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone together today, whether you're online with us or, or here in the room. We are excited about getting into this Advent series together. And uh, as we dive into this this morning, uh, we're going to do things just a little bit differently over the next few weeks in terms of our, our preaching of God's Word. And, and again, as Matt said, our, our goal is is hopefully to put on display to the glory of God these two testaments that God has given us that are are united by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there was one of the early church fathers, a man named Augustine, who famously said about these two testaments, old and new, that God has given us. He said that the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And I hope that'll make more sense as we work through this over the next several weeks together. We, we want to set before you each week both an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage and see how these are brought together in the person of Christ. And I just want to tell you as your pastor that, that one of the things that really just changed my life in terms of my understanding of the Word of God and my appreciation for Christ was, was seeing these kinds of connections. And seeing that Jesus didn't get his start as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, but he is the God through whom all things were made and nothing was made apart from him. And seeing him in the Old Testament was a powerful thing for me as a young man beginning to see some of those connections. And so I pray this will be a powerful time for us as a church. And and today's theme of Advent is this theme of hope. And as we think about the subject of hope today, as we consider that we're living in a time when many people are feeling very hopeless because of an ongoing pandemic and, and an unresolved election and continuing racial strife and all the things that we're experiencing right now in our world, we remind ourselves today that we have an everlasting hope that has not changed over the last nine months. In fact, we ought to be even more hopeful as we consider the sufferings of the present age because these sufferings are a reminder that glory is coming. And so we're going to read today from Genesis chapter 1. If you would stand with me in honor of God's word, I'm going to read Grant's scripture and he's going to come and bring a message to us from Genesis 1 and then he'll read my scripture and then we'll be in Hebrews 2. But for now, Genesis chapter 1, some familiar words about God's creation of man Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what we have in front of us this morning in your holy word, a reminder of our origins. That you, our holy God, created us in your image to be a reflection 
of your character and purpose in all the earth. And you gave us this commission to to fill the earth and to have dominion over the earth. And so I pray, Father, for my brother Grant this morning. I pray that as he comes to share with us what you have impressed upon his heart and mind and soul in these days as he's been preparing to to preach this word. God, I pray that you give us ears to hear. I pray that you would open his mouth and give him utterance of the things that you would have us to hear today and that we would receive with joy and thankfulness these truths of your word. I pray that you would bless us through our brother this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Uh, starting into Advent this year, we're going to do this new thing, and so I'm as new at this as you all are. But uh, this week one, we were we're talking about the new Adam, uh, and so to uh, get a good grasp on what the full meaning of Christmas is and why we celebrate this time, I think it's important that we go back to the beginning of things and see why. All of this is taking place, and so it's a good time to talk about the first and faulty Adam. This is a title that Andrew had came up with when we talked through this. Uh, but Adam was a firstborn, um, and he was created in the image of God. That is something we see of Adam. This is the beginning of what they call the Adamic Covenant. That's a church phrase, but it's just a promise for Adam of what, who Adam is and what Adam is to do, and it is a promise for all of mankind. But uh, the first promise there in the Scripture is that, that he is created in the image of God. And that gives him a special uh, place in all of creation and that no other creature was created in God's image. And Genesis 2 even goes on to talk about how he formed Adam and how he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and, and gave Adam life. And, and then also how he performed the first surgery and took Adam's rib and made Eve to be a helper for him. But we are image bearers of Christ. We are image bearers of God made in his image for his glory. And... So God created man in his own image. Um, I also wanted to include in this Luke 3.38. It's just the end of a lineage that's in chapter 3 of Luke. But it, I wanted to highlight there, it, it calls Adam the son of God. And Adam, like Jesus, was a son of God. He doesn't have an earthly father. He doesn't have... Uh, a lineage before him. He is a firstborn of creation made in God's image, a direct one-off from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit himself. But we are image bearers and sons of God. And it's not just Adam's image, but God also crowned man with his own authority. Adam wasn't just placed there as a 
like a museum painting to be looked at or uh, a piece of the garden to, to just roam freely there. But Adam was given a job to do. Uh, he says, after he creates him in his own image, he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam was in a place to reign with God over the garden. Yes, he was subject to God. God is the overall chief here and he is the overall head of creation. But Adam, being a special creation, set apart from other things, was made to lord over the earth with God. And so it's funny, uh, once we get to Genesis 3 and you start to see uh, Satan's deception come into play that he is, uh, what, what he says is, well, God doesn't, God doesn't want you to eat of the tree of good and evil. It was a command of God not to do. He doesn't want you to eat of it because you'll die. He, wants you, he doesn't want you to eat of it because you'll be like him. And what Adam should have said is, I'm already as much like him as I'm ever going to be. I'm made in His image. I'm Lord over creation with Him. I'm ruling alongside Him. If anybody's like God in all of creation, it's not you, serpent, it's me. And He should have crushed His head. But He didn't do that. Instead, He and Eve partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin, as a result, has corrupted man and God's good creation. We see that in the fall. He... uh, he talks about when he, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, curse are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's a promise coming. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And finally, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So in verse 17 there, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. This is leading to why we endure pandemics. This is why we have suffering on the earth. This is why we have death. Adam and Eve really couldn't comprehend what death was in the early day. They they had not seen death, but we have seen Lots of death. Even this year we have seen lots of death, haven't we? And so, from Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi, we have a question being asked by the people of God. And that is, who will redeem what sin has stolen? Uh, I wanted to share Revelation 5, 1 through 4 uh, 
John is talking about this, and, and I won't give you the whole spiel because that's some of what Andrew's going to tell you about, but he says, Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. This is the basic gospel that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are deserving of death and a sinner's hell as a result. And all through the Old Testament, you see glimpses of a Redeemer, and yet, like Romans tells us, they all fall short. You see Noah being a man of God and one who God chose out of a wicked people to save on the ark, and yet days after the ark you find him drunk and naked in his tent and and being exposed to his family, and he, he fails at the covenant. You see Abraham being a great man of faith. He's able to take his possessions and his family and leave the land that he had known all his life just on the word that God was going to give him a promised land. And yet, you see Abraham fail at the covenant. And he tries to take God's word into his own hands and and bears a son with Hagar. And we still reap the benefits of that. That is still something that plagues the earth, Abraham's disobedience and what that brings. After that, you see Moses, a great deliverer. Israel's been enslaved for 400 years and Moses brings them out and is a faithful man of God to the millions. And yet you see him get angry with God and strike the rock and he himself isn't able to enter into the promised land. And Joshua, this great conqueror who's going to lead Israel in, he goes in and and yet he doesn't accomplish all that God had said to accomplish. And prophet after prophet. And David comes and he looks to be a man after God's own heart. He's one who has brought Israel into a world power, who has brought peace to the land and given them riches like they'd never seen. And yet he is an adulterous murderer who hides his own scandal at the blood of his friend Uriah. He's not the Redeemer. We see when we're, uh, as prophets, go on and that Elijah was, was one who had a strong faith and who would step forward against 450 prophets of Baal and call on God to rain down fire and, and burn up a sacrifice and turn Israel back to himself. And after that, you would think, that he had seen a great thing and that he was able to follow through on his faith and yet he flees to the wilderness in fear of Queen Jezebel. When Israel's exiled, you see uh, Ezra and Nehemiah bringing them back and they're able to to focus people back on the word and, and to rebuild the walls and yet the Holy Spirit isn't under their command because when Ezra commissions the temple, the Holy Spirit doesn't come down upon it. So at the end of all of creation through the Old Testament, through the book of Malachi, they are looking for the Messiah who will redeem Israel. And every time we find a Messiah, he fails. And he shows that just like the fathers before him, he is not worthy to open the scroll. And he is not worthy to be worshipped. 
He is but a man. I've been reading through First and Second Kings, and there's a continuing refrain. Whether it was a good king on the throne or a bad king or a repentant king, it always says, and they went to be to uh, to sleep and were laid to rest with their fathers. At the end of it, the champion death reigns, and he keeps pouring in to men, and men cannot overcome it. So who will be the overcomer? Who's going to be the one who will deliver his people? Paul says in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we look back to the first century after 400 years of silence from God, from from the last prophet Malachi to New Testament Matthew, that blank page that says New Testament was 400 years where God didn't say anything to His people. And so looking at, at death and at sin and at brokenness in the world and longing for a Savior in the first century after 400 years of no one speaking, no one knowing what God is doing, Let's read Hebrews 2 together, starting in verse 5. It says, Now it was not the two angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? We read that this morning, didn't we? You made him a little lower or made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing out of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the deliverer that you did not leave your people in want. That you did not leave us to the sin and the death that we deserve. But that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, of this one who has bore our sins. Who is the salvation for mankind. Who has been given all authority. Reveal him to us. That we may worship him rightly. Help us to love you and to see the true and better Adam and to glorify you with all that we are for it is your will for your creation to worship you. God, we thank you for all that you have done. Be with Andrew now as he brings us the word. In Jesus' name, amen.
And so the whole Old Testament leaves us with this question. Who will redeem what sin has stolen? And we go to the New Testament in Romans chapter 7. And we see that same struggle in the life of the Apostle Paul. As he is wrestling in Romans 7 over his own sin. And over his own struggle with sin. He comes to the end of that chapter. And he just cries out. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will redeem what sin has stolen? That's the question that each of us needs to ask and be able to answer. And thanks be to God, the answer is found in the Word of God. The answer is found in the true and better Adam. The true and better Adam, I want to talk to you about him as we uh, go to the second part of our message this morning. Uh, We see in Romans chapter 5 these words. Paul writes, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Then listen to this. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come paul here is helping us to to see this reality that when adam sinned against god all of mankind was infected by the sin of adam and it's so easy for us at times to look at something like that and say well that doesn't seem fair why do we have to suffer for adam's sin But what the writer of Romans here, what Paul is saying is, unless we experience the effects of Adam's sin, we cannot experience the effects of Christ's great salvation. Because by one man's sin, all of us were infected with sin. Of course, he goes on to say, we all sinned regardless of of that reality. We were born sinners and we acted upon that sin nature, every one of us. That even in that reality, the fact that we were all infected by one man's sin means that we could be redeemed by one man's great salvation. And the shedding of his blood. And so then Adam becomes, this last phrase there, he becomes a type of the one who was to come. He becomes a model pointing forward to something greater. He is a prototype of, of a greater man that was going to come into the world. He, Adam was a signpost, as we'll see in the coming weeks, several different signposts that were pointing forward to the greater, the better, the true and better Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 15 says, For as by a man came death, by a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. This is a great truth for us. This is great hope for us. In a day when when death is making headlines day by day, we remind ourselves and should be rightfully reminded that the wages of sin, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we have a great and abiding hope that as we walk by faith and not by sight, we will see him on display. And so some truths this morning 
that we want to see about the true and better Adam. First of all, Christ is the very image of God in which mankind was created. So the fulfillment of Genesis 1.27 that says that man and woman were both created in the image of God, image bearers, as Grant displayed for us just a few moments ago, that as we were created in the image of God, that image was fulfilled perfectly and rightfully in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God. It's different than what it says about Adam. Adam was created in the image of God. We have been created in God's image. But Jesus is that image. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the means by which all things were created. And he is the purpose for which all things were created. All things were created by him. Through him and for him. This is our Christ. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. You see, we need church to continually go back to our foundations. To go back to the in the beginning so that we can understand rightfully where we are in this day. And we can understand even more rightfully what's coming in the days to come. If we don't know where we came from, we probably won't know where we are. And we certainly won't know where we're going. And that's what the Bible is leading us to understand. So Christ, the image of God in which all things, in which man was created and in which all things were made. Number B on your outline there. This reminder that his invisible dominion will one day be unveiled. Let's go back to verse 8 of our text in Hebrews 2. This is reminding us of of, of Psalm 8 that we read earlier. There's a quotation here from the middle of Psalm 8 that Matt read for us. That everything would be put under subjection, in subjection under his feet. Well, who is he? That's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand. And so it says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But notice this, at present. In this moment, in this time, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Isn't that true? At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Christ. And yet, the Bible is saying to us, everything is in subjection to Christ. He is the king above all kings. Not just that he will be the king above all kings. He is the king above all kings. He has already been crowned. His rule and reign has already been inaugurated. As we're waiting for inauguration in January, we're in a similar kind of situation here, except for our king has already been inaugurated. He's already been crowned. We just have yet to see the fullness of 
His kingdom. Don Carson said it this way. He said, All things have indeed been placed under the feet of Christ, but we do not yet see all things placed under His feet. That's the tension that we see throughout Scripture. This already and not yet tension. Things have already been placed under His authority. We just don't yet see it. The reality has been inaugurated, but its consummation will come at a time in the future. So King Jesus has already been crowned with all authority. We just have yet to see the unveiling of his kingdom. And so Hebrews 12 reminds us that we are a people of faith who live under the conviction of things not yet seen. We hope in that in that which has not yet been revealed his invisible his invisible dominion will one day be unveiled his king so while we pray lord your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we're praying for the unveiling of his perfect authority and then in verse 9 of our text we see what is a very necessary progression taking place let's read it together again and then then we'll talk about it verse 9 we don't yet see everything in subjection to him at the end of verse 8 but we see who we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone. And here in verse 9, there is such a necessary progression for us to understand the ways of God in salvation. If you miss this progression, you have a very real possibility of missing the gospel altogether. And there are many false gospels that would confuse or cause aberrations of this necessary progression. And I want you to see it rightly this morning. We see here in verse 9 that it was his incarnation his taking on flesh and coming to dwell among us that then led to his substitutionary humiliation at the cross which ultimately resulted in his supreme exaltation now that pattern that process that god put in place is necessary for us to understand It was necessary that the perfect Son of God would take on flesh in that incarnation, that He would take on flesh and come to dwell among us. He who was fully God in every way had to take on the fullness of humanity in order that He might become our mediator and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's The incarnation was necessary, Him taking on flesh. But the incarnation led then to His humiliation. Was it not humiliating enough that the King above all kings would step out of heaven and step into the squalor of being born in a barn and laid in a feeding trough wrapped in rags? And yet, Philippians 2 reminds us He would go so much lower than that. What we could see as the lowliest of beginnings only went from a human perspective, from bad to worse, as the baby who was born in a manger lived the first 30 years of his life in relative obscurity. Nobody knew who he was. He was in an out-of-the-way place called Nazareth, a place in which people said, what good could possibly come out of a place like that? 
And yet that's exactly where God brought him up for those first 30 years of his life. And then he began his public ministry. And from the very beginning of his public ministry, he was not worshipped. And they did not submit to him. Instead, they sought to take his life from very early on because he was a threat to those who were in power. And at the end of those three years of training up his disciples and proclaiming the word of God and doing many miracles rather than him being installed as king over Israel he was killed on a cross just outside of Jerusalem the ultimate humiliation for the perfect son of God what began with his incarnation led to his humiliation and notice it was substitutionary humiliation he did this in our place if you miss this you miss the gospel if you miss the reality that he did all these things taking on flesh he did for us and for the glory of god going to the cross he did for us and for the glory of god and because of his perfect obedience to everything the father had given him to do then as philippians 2 he has been given the name that is above Every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the king above all kings, that his is the supreme exaltation. But notice again the pattern. The taking on flesh led to the taking up of the cross, which led to the wearing of the crown. In church, the same will be true for us if we go to follow Jesus. He never promised us this pathway would be easy or simple. He has called us to an incarnational ministry, which means we've got to get up close and personal with folks that we might otherwise not want to. We can't do the things God has called us to do from a social distance or virtually. It's got to require us getting into one another's lives and helping folks to see the glory of God through His image bearers, that's you and me, as that image is being renewed and restored through the person and work of Christ in us. So it begins with that incarnational ministry, but we also recognize that if we're going to get involved in incarnational face-to-face ministry with others, it's also going to lead us to a place in which there's going to be humiliation. There's going to be humbling. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be difficult things that are going to flood into our lives because of our following Jesus. Don't miss that. It's not in spite of our following Jesus. But Jesus said, if you're going to come follow after me in this life, you're going to have trouble. You're going to be persecuted. It was true in the early church. And for those who are faithful to the gospel today, it continues to be true. But we have great hope because our humiliation will lead to exaltation. So we follow in the steps of Christ. Kent Hughes said it this way. Whereas the height of exaltation for man is being made a little lower than the angels. That was the height of things for us. It was for Jesus the depth of humiliation. Jesus stooped to reach down to the height of man's glory. Jesus stooped to reach down to the height of man's glory. In 
And finally, in verse 10. In verse 10 here of our text, this is one of what I uh, call these uh, the gospel in a nutshell. This is one of those uh, verses in Scripture that summarizes the work of God. It would be worthy of our committing to memory, Hebrews 2.10, because it is such a powerful rendition of the gospel in such compact language. But what we see in verse 10 is we see salvation's captain succeeding, completing his work through suffering. Notice I did not say, once again, it's not in spite of suffering. It's through suffering that Christ completed His work. And so the writer of Hebrews says, For it was fitting that He, that Christ, that it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Again, notice what he's saying here. He's referred to as the, the founder of our salvation. Your translation may, may, see, may see this as the, the pioneer of our salvation or the captain of our salvation. He is the first one to walk this road, but he's showing us the way. Remember what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if we're going to come to the Father, we've got to walk in the way in which Jesus walked. And so we don't mind the idea of incarnation, and we really don't mind the idea of exaltation, but that central portion of humiliation and suffering, we would rather leave that to the side. And yet, the Bible is showing us it's essential. This is the method by which God has redeemed His people. So whereas the Old Testament left us with this question of who will redeem what sin has stolen... Who will deliver us from this body of death? We find that the answer is Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. But it's not just about the who, it's also about the way in which He would do it. That He would complete the work the Father had given Him through suffering. There have been many over the last 2,000 years that have sincerely struggled and many who even rejected this idea in fact the, the prosperity gospel that is so prevalent in so many of our churches today rejects the idea that salvation comes through suffering suffering in the, in the mind of the prosperity gospel is something to be pushed to the side in fact they would say if you are suffering it's because your faith is lacking and yet we understand rightfully that true and biblical faith understands suffering as the means by which God brings us our salvation. Apart from the suffering of the cross, there is no salvation for us. And we are a people without hope. We are a hopeless lot except for the cross. And so we see here... Jesus accomplishing all the Father had given Him to do. That's what it means when it says He was made perfect through suffering. It doesn't mean that He was in any way morally deficient or that there was any kind of an incompleteness to His person. It means the Father had given Him a work to do and He completed that work through the sufferings of the cross. So that when He said at the cross, it is finished, 
He was talking about the fulfillment of all that God had given him to do, that the Father had given him since before the foundation of the earth. It was complete. It was finished. It was perfect. And so what do we do with all this? It would be, I think, easy for us just to kind of reside up here in a heady space where we get big theological truths and we, and we think we know a little bit more about the Bible now. But, but I want us to see that this is immensely practical. What does it mean for us to, to walk this pathway of Hebrews 2, verses 9 and 10, this pathway that leads us from, from incarnation to, to humiliation to exaltation? Well, what does it look like for us to actually walk in the way of Christ as we're walking through uh, this Advent season in the days that follow. And I'm going to leave you with just two simple take-home truths to, to meditate upon this morning. The first is this. That the call of our captain, the founder of our salvation, the one on whom Hebrews 12 would cause us to fix our eyes upon, that the call of our captain is to take up our cross daily and follow him. And taking up the cross implies suffering. It implies an embrace of suffering according to the purposes of God. It implies our understanding that God is doing something in our difficulties that He could not accomplish in our lives through any other means. Hopefully you could say a hearty amen if you've been walking with Jesus for a while. You've seen how God has crafted your life through your difficulties, through your sufferings, how he has built your character, how he's given you a greater hope in his eternal plan, how he has strengthened your faith through those times of struggle. Hopefully we could say amen to that, but the Bible even calls us to go farther and to rejoice in our sufferings, which the world says that's crazy. We don't rejoice in suffering. We try to get away from it. And and yet the scriptures remind us we can rejoice in our sufferings because we know, we know that we know that God is doing something in our suffering, that he's accomplishing his purposes for our good and for his glory. And so we gladly take up our cross daily and follow him. And secondly, we remind ourselves that the course of the cross leads to the crown. If there would be glory, there must first be a dying to ourselves. If there would be exaltation, there must first be humiliation. And we don't like that. And our flesh cries out against it. And yet we recognize this is the plan and purpose of God. It has been His continual pattern. We cannot hope to gain the crown if we will not take up the cross. But we remind ourselves in days when the cross is heavy and we don't know if we can bear it any longer. When sufferings are deep, when grief is overwhelming, we remind ourselves that the King of Kings has said to us, take heart, I've already overcome this world. Don't worry, I've got this. 
We remind ourselves that ultimately at the end of this pathway that seems wrought with so many enemies and so many temptations and so many struggles and so much heartache and pain, we remind ourselves that as we walk with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that we are looking forward to the same joy that He was looking to at the cross, which is the bringing to glory of many sons and daughters and that's exactly what we see here it was fitting the writer of hebrews says this was right and good and true that the one who created all things should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering as he would be the one to bring many sons to glory and if you are resting in the hope of jesus christ this morning If you're resting in His finished work at the cross, you are among those many sons and daughters that will one day gather around His throne free from the struggles of sin. No more temptations to face. No more devils to conquer. No more mourning or crying or pain. No more grief to process. All those things will have been passed away and we will hear him say, behold, listen, pay attention. I'm making all things new. This is where our hope lies. And then we can respond. We can respond to these things in the way that Paul responds in Romans 7. After crying out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's as if he pauses for a split second and then he reminds himself of the gospel. And his response is, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Immediately he reminds himself that there is no hope in himself. There is no hope in his own works or his own words or his own flesh. There's no hope there, but there is infinite, eternal and immeasurable hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who is the hope of all the ages. The hopes of all the ages are found and met and fulfilled in him. And so we too. In a day of pandemic, in a day of political and racial and social unrest, in a day when we wonder, will things ever be normal again? In a day like this, the heart cry of God's people can be, thanks be to God. He has delivered us from this body of death. So we need not be concerned about these momentary sufferings because they're passing away. King Jesus is on His throne. His kingdom is coming. One day we will see it fully unveiled and we will know that we have known the One who is restoring what sin has stolen. Let's bow before Him this morning. Father, what glorious things you've spoken to us through your word today reminders that we were made in your image created according to your sovereign purposes to fill this word world with your glory to have dominion over it you crowned us with glory as our king over all kings and yet we chose rebellion against you 
We forfeited the crown. And for that reason, our sinful rebellion stole from your perfect creation the glory and the goodness with which you had endowed it. But by your sovereign plan, by your sovereign and perfect plan, you saw fit when the time was appropriate to send your one and only Son into the world. He took on flesh and He dwelt among us. He experienced all of our temptations, all of our sufferings, all of our griefs. And yet He was without sin. And then the one who was without sin took upon Himself the sins of all mankind so that through Him we might become the righteousness of Almighty God. And so, Father, I pray above all things this morning that You would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and scorned its shame and is now at this very moment seated at the right hand of God in glory, interceding for us, praying for us that we would fix our hearts and hopes firmly upon Him. That we would not be dismayed, that we would not be troubled. That we would not grow weary in doing that which is good. That we would take up our crosses daily, reminding ourselves that one day we will lay down the cross and take up the crown. And then we will take those very crowns and lay them at your feet in worship, Father. You are the one who has done all things well. Help us to worship you rightly this morning. In Jesus' name.